Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet Laura King-Edwards, author of Run to the Light, a story of her life after she learned a few weeks following her wedding that Taylor, her young sister, had a rare disease for which there was and is no cure. With her mother and family friends, Laura founded a charity in an effort to save children with the disease, and she came closer to Taylor and her mother. Taylor didn't quit, and when the disease took her sight, Taylor wanted to run with girls on the run, and she completed her first race blind. Inspired by Taylor, Laura, a lifelong runner, began running in half marathons to raise money and awareness, and eventually she put on a blindfold and ran for Taylor. We start the show with Laura reading from the prologue, where she's running. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. The pop of the starter pistol shattered the damp air. It was time to go. I'm ready, I said. Run, Andrew said. My guide tugged on the bungee cord. I felt the coarse nylon and the cold metal hook in my hand. The race had thousands of runners, but we were starting with the walkers 30 minutes early for safety. The bodies clustered around us talked about wicking fabric and post-race plans and their kids. However, we quickly left the others behind, and the cacophony of excited voices and rustling jackets and footfalls on pavement faded to a low den. A chilly breeze carried the scents of hot chocolate and diesel fuel and sweat beating on brows. It was odd to feel the hairline cracks and the crunch of falling leaves and the smoothness of painted traffic lines through my thick-soled shoes. I thought I heard someone shouting my name, but then the voice was gone and I couldn't be sure. We ran down a hill. I felt the sudden grade change in my knees and the tips of my toes as they pounded the street, my legs cycling to keep up as the earth fell away beneath my feet. The throaty rumble of an engine came up behind us and filled the quiet. You have to slow down. The driver's guttural voice and the chatter of his police radio broke the calm. I quickly realized he must be the officer charged with pacing the early starters. Andrew was arguing with him, insisting we had permission to run ahead of the walkers, but I couldn't focus on the words. I'd been training for this race for five months, but in a way, I'd been preparing for it for years. 
Since my sister's diagnosis, running had sustained me as I fought my own demons. And now it had become a powerful weapon in the war we were fighting for her life. I wasn't letting anyone or anything steal this moment. Then the world was silent again, except for the slap slap of my laces against the tops of my shoes. Prickles of sweat clung to my back, and ringlets of hair curled at the nape of my neck. The curved metal hook of the bungee cord felt clammy in my hand. Darkness had swallowed the light, but in my head, I could see the finish line. I filled my lungs with cold air, and I picked up speed. Larking Edwards is a writer, runner, and passionate rare disease advocate. She co-founded a nonprofit organization, Taylor's Tale, which today is one of the world's leading voices in the fight against rare disease. Laura earned an English degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has spent her entire professional career in marketing. Oracle Fine Arts Review, Endurance Magazine, and many others have published her award-winning work. A prolific storyteller, Laura speaks frequently and delivered a TEDx talk in 2017. Edwards, a Charlotte native, lives with her husband and son in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Run to the Light is her first book. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, Landis. Thanks for having me on Charlotte Readers Podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have you here. Um, you didn't run up the steps. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I'm wearing heels. <laughs> okay, all right. So what was the last race that you ran in? So the last race I ran was a couple of weeks ago. I ran the Orange County Half Marathon in California. And is this part of a, uh, a cycle of races that you're involved in? It is. So California marked state 22 of 50. And um, it's something that I'm, I'm doing to continue to spread my sister's story and support the rare disease community across the nation. So you've run half marathons in 22 states? Uh, half marathons in almost all of those states. I've um, There have been some, some uh, outliers in there. For example, I walked a 5K with a broken foot in Fargo. Well, that, that counts. <laughs> <laughs> About the same effort level or actually a little more. <laughs> now, you're saving Hawaii and Alaska for last, are you? I did Hawaii already. Oh, you did? I okay. did Hawaii. That was state number eight in 2015. Okay, what's the next date? So the next date on the calendar that's booked is South Dakota, but um, it's about five, four months away, and that's driving me a little crazy, so I'm already looking at race calendars. Now tell us the race you just ran in California. It was it, it, I know you're, you're running in all 50 states as a tribute to your sister that we'll talk about in just a minute, but are you also connecting it to people in those communities who are going through the same things that you and your family went through? Absolutely. Wherever I can, I'm trying to connect with either local organizations dedicated to fighting rare disease and or patients and families in those areas. So California was special because I ran for a little boy named Daniel Kerner who lived in Orange County. And I say lived. He lost his battle with Batten disease some years ago now. Um, was honored to run for his family and him and also connected with an organization called Global Genes that's an important partner of our charity, Taylor's Tale, and they're based in Irvine. Yeah, so the, the disease that uh, is discussed in your book, which affected your sister Taylor, uh, is Batten disease. Tell, tell us about that. What, what? 
Yeah, yeah. So Batten disease, um, technically in a, a quick science note, so it's the technical name for Taylor's disease was CLN1 disease. CLN1 is the affected gene. And out of the CLN, CLN diseases, there are about 14 forms, and Batten disease has collectively kind of been known, come to known as, be known as the, the group of diseases. Um, so Batten disease or CLN1 disease in Taylor's case, it's a rare neurodegenerative disease. It is inherited, it's genetic, it's a recessive um, disease caused by a recessive gene, CLN1, and it causes a myriad of symptoms. Uh, children often lose their vision uh, completely. They lose their ability over time to walk and talk. Um, they have cognitive impairment and they have seizures, um, some of them very severe. They're movement disorders, and right now, all of the forms of Batten disease are universally fatal. Now, it sounds like an awful disease, and you were, you were much older than Taylor when she was diagnosed at age eight, correct? Yes, so Taylor was diagnosed just a few weeks shy of her eighth birthday, and I um, had just celebrated the one-month anniversary of my wedding, so it's much older than Taylor. Uh, my parents like to call Taylor the bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother and I were both much older than her, um, and I will say that being so far apart in age, I think, really helped shape my own experience dealing with this disease in addition to my relationship with my sister even before we knew she was sick. And that's something that I certainly explore and run to the light. And you also explore in, in the book um, how it could have been you just as easily. That's right. So um, it, again, kind of the, the science 101 or genetics 101 with a, a recessive disease, what that means is that you have to get a bad copy of the gene from both of your parents to be affected. If you get one bad copy, you are healthy, but you're a carrier. And that's the case for both my brother and me. And so I often lie in bed at night thinking about how close I came to having this disease. And Every day that drives me to do whatever I can. There, there's a reason. You know, hopefully mm -hmm. there are many reasons that I, I didn't get sick, but one of them is that I'm, I'm meant to try to make the world a better place for children like Taylor. Well, your book is a beautiful tribute to your sister Taylor. It's well written. I'd like to, I'd like to ask you this. Uh, tell, what do you remember about your sister? So Taylor was sick for a long time. It's degenerative disease, so it, it got worse over time. But... I, I like to think of Taylor before she got ill um, or before the, the grip of Batten disease really took over her life. And one thing I will always remember about Taylor is just this incredible spunk. Uh, mm. At times when she was younger, you may even venture to call it attitude. She had a little bit of a, <laughs> I mean, she was a, she was a firecracker. She was that kid who, mm. who wasn't going to take any bull from anybody else, no matter how much bigger they were. Um, she had a lot of sass, uh, but she had just enough sweetness to go along with that, that everybody who knew Taylor loved her. And I believe to this day that that spunk that characterized her even before she got sick really served her well later. And it you talk, turned into courage. Yeah, you talk about that in the book. There are several scenes in the book, um, one of which uh, we'll get to later, which has kind of inspired your own running. You know, you, you ran blindfolded in her honor and uh, because of uh, something that she took on herself. She didn't let her blindness get in the way of running. Right? Absolutely not. Yeah. So I know you miss her terribly and you think about her a lot. What was it about that spunk you were describing that helped carry her through her illness until she died. 
So Taylor never asked the question, why me? Uh, which I think I ask almost any time something bad happens to me. Just like, why did this have to happen to me? Why did I have to deal with this? It's not fair. Here, it's not fair a lot. Um, but Taylor never questioned those things. She just, I say how keep you know put her head down, but she really kept her head high and did everything that she had to do to try to have a normal life. Um, she never she never questioned the fairness of the situation. She just tried to make it better. And often that was just trying to do the normal things that kids her age did, whether that was you know, being in school talent shows or going to dances or running 5Ks. And you and your mother and father and brother were trying to give her as normal a life as possible. That's absolutely right. And with a with a devastating diagnosis like this, I know that every family is different, but we chose um, not to ever tell her, you know, the 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 ugly, the really ugly parts of Batten disease. We didn't feel it was withholding information so much from her as choosing not to burden her with that. And I think that that helped her, even though later she she knew more than she let on. It mm. it helped her really see the good in each day and and appreciate the time that she had. But you even share in the book that even when she was going to all these medical doctors who were poking and prodding and everything, she rarely complained about that. So Taylor had, I don't know if, if listeners have ever had an MRI before, but you have to be very still for the images to be captured. Taylor had MRIs that would last more than two hours, and she would do it with no sedation. This is a kid. I mean, she's eight, nine, 10, 11 years old at the time, and she would lie perfectly still. I mean, not even blink an eyelash because that's what the doctors and the techs told her to do. Yeah, no, that's difficult. <laughs> I've been in one of those MRs <laughs> where the ceiling's right above you and you're trying to, they told me one time, stop breathing so loud. I said, well, I'm trying not to, you know, whatever. But okay, so this book is also, it's not just a tribute to your sister, but it's also um, sort of a tribute to the endurance and commitment that your family took on to finding a cure. How, how did your family come together around this difficult disease? So even within my core family, the five of us and, and my husband being six, um, every, every individual faced it a little bit differently. And I think that that's what you probably would see in any crisis, in any family or, or a group of people facing a crisis. We all face it in our own way. But one thing that we never wavered from was supporting each other through this. So where my mom and dad are completely different in how they face this crisis, and, and it's very apparent, I believe, in the book, um, how different they are, they, they supported each other. And the same goes for you know my, my other sibling, uh, my brother, and my husband. We all, that day that she was diagnosed, it was a hot summer day in July of 2006 here in Charlotte, we, we made a promise to each other and to Taylor that we were one going to do everything we could to fight this disease, but that two we weren't going to abandon each other. And as part of that fight, you founded an organization. We did. Uh, so uh, not not too long after the diagnosis, it was. I remember the leaves were starting to turn on the trees that fall. My mom got a group of um, got a group of women together in Charlotte. She had asked for help. Um, she said, "I had this big dream, but I can't do it alone." And together. Uh, we with those with those women founded Taylor's Tale. And how'd you come up with the title? So I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So that might be part of it. But I think that at the end of the day, what we wanted to do was turn the page on the 
the current situation for batten disease and other rare diseases and that was that you know it's a terrible disease there's nothing we can do we're sorry take your child home and love them and make happy memories because they're going to die and we wanted to write a new chapter and we wanted to to rewrite that story of what happens to people facing these devastating chronic illnesses and we wanted to find answers and, and you talk in the book about how much work was involved in Taylor's tale it wasn't just we're going to set up a nonprofit. you had to raise money you had to do education you had to reach out to other organizations travel I'm curious how all of that uh, you know a lot of times people say well I want to spend my every ounce of my time with my loved one who's going through this difficult disease y'all were splitting some of your time right mm-hmm. how did that how did that make you feel yeah so um running founding a nonprofit organization and building it from the ground up is not for the faint of heart i will never sit here and tell anybody that it's easy or even that i would recommend it for everybody um, it's it's been a difficult road and and sometimes it's been frustrating it's been it's made us angry but it was absolutely the right thing to do uh, but as i explore and run to the light there were there were days where i, I really had a, a huge internal struggle because i would think I'm sitting up at night, you know, battling with our, our issues on our website. And, and you have to remember, too, this was maybe a decade ago when uh, websites were technology was a little different and um, some of the platforms weren't as easy to use. But, you know, planning events, going to events and, and thinking, you know, at the same time, do I not just want to be taking my sister to get her nails done or mm-hmm. going for walks? And that was that was a, a conflict. That was a huge battle. I I. I you know, fought with myself, particularly in those days when we thought, you know, we still have a good chance to do this in time to save her. Mm. That always brought me back to let's keep let's keep going. And you said that everyone in the family approached things differently. You're going to do a little reading now um, that relates to your mother. But before that, um, and I think you talk about this, your mother's anger, right? And and she was angry uh, for for. Good. Everybody can understand that emotion, given what what she's facing with her daughter. But you described yourself as sort of a precocious teenager early on, and not wanting to. You, know, you thought your mother and your father they call you about this. They're at the hospital. They have a new child. You don't even have time to even. I don't want to stop by the hospital. I got track <laughs> practice or something, right? I mean, you're a teenager, right? And they're they're having a kid, right? <laughs> and and then later. You see some different things in your mother that you didn't see when you were 16 years old. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I was not, I will say I was not that close to my mother growing up. Um, and I know that, or hope that she will listen to this podcast right. and hear me say that. <laughs> I was much closer to my father. Um, my mom was always an incredible advocate for people who weren't as fortunate as her. And so even though um, she you know, didn't work as a paying job late in, into the late, late wee hours of the morning, she was always going somewhere, doing something, leading something in the community. And so we, frankly, just didn't spend that much time together. Um, On a deeper level, though, now that I'm an adult and I've worked with her so closely on building Taylor's Tale, I understand that maybe some of our differences were our similarities, Mm. not just the fact that we didn't spend as much time together. I think that I am a lot like my mom. Um, I think we're both type A, we're perfectionists, we, um, we demand a lot of ourselves and others. And Sometimes those those personality traits clashed in a mother and daughter. Yeah, well, you just you know you describe how what really put you off when you were younger. 
actually made you proud of your mother through this, you know, difficult situation that you were going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's pick it up on page 27 um, and have you read uh, that segment. I wasn't the only one who found it difficult most of the time and impossible some of the time to forge ahead into our new world with enthusiasm and grace. But mom wasn't just devastated about Taylor's illness. She was angry. Not long after the diagnosis, mom stood up and walked out of church smack in the middle of the minister's sermon. She didn't hate God or even blame him for Taylor's illness, she told me afterward. She just didn't feel like praising him that day. The Batten Association's support staff had given us contact information for other affected families. Many of these families offered helpful advice for our current situation and the horrors yet to come. But grateful as she was, my mother rejected the recommendation of some fellow Batten parents to tell Taylor everything, that she had a fatal disease and would never grow up. She refused to be labeled a Batten parent. I never asked to join this club, she'd say. Instead, she vowed to fight for her daughter's life, even as Google results and the city's best doctors and other affected families told her she was crazy to try. So isn't this exactly the type of person you want on your side when you're going through something like this? <laughs> <laughs> um, if I ever go through something even half as difficult as what Taylor faced, I'm, I am glad to have my mother on my side. She is right. a, for lack of better word, she is a bulldog, and she mm-hmm. will stop at nothing to, to get what she believes is, is right. Now, she's an educated person, as are you, and as you're going through this and you're looking at the data and you're going through the trials and you see how slow progress is, did that ever cause you to waver in your quest to find a cure for this disease? Well, I will first of all say it was not a matter of slow progress. There was no progress. So when Taylor was diagnosed in 2006, we were mired in kind of a dark ages, um, if you will, for Batten disease. We had, they had identified the genes for some of the forms back in the 90s, but then work kind of stopped. Because if, if people, if there's not somebody knocking on the door saying, you need to be researching this disease, you need to be developing treatments, then it's an ultra rare disease. People aren't going to just do that. So there really wasn't anything happening. Um, I will say that it was always hard. It was never easy to fundraise for such a rare disease, particularly after Taylor got sicker. I think when you have a, a beautiful, cute, you know, little girl who's, um, you know, sparkly princess, you know, people think that they still have a chance to save her. It's easier than later, but. I will still say today, we never, even though we had tough days, we never wavered in our resolve to keep going. Was there a moment um, in your work with Taylor's Tale when you realized that you'd come to a point that no matter how much you did, you weren't going to be able to find a cure before Taylor's time was up? I did. And it was, trying to remember back now, I mean, it was five or six, maybe four or five, six years after her diagnosis when we realized that science doesn't move as quickly as the disease sometimes. And that was a really tough realization. And while I had never quit our work with Taylor's Tale, I personally and emotionally, I was really struggling. I mean, there were times where I wondered if I could even survive this. I'd mm-hmm. be I'd be doing Taylor's Tale till the very last day, but yeah. I, I may not live to tell about it. 
And I, and I can see even now when you talk about it, it's emotional for you. As much as you talk about it, it's still, it's still hard to talk about. I've, I think that this is something that, um, that never goes away. And with Taylor's passing recently, one of the things that I've learned or grown accustomed to, to understanding is the difference between grieving and mourning. So, and a wise person told me this, but mourning is something that happens directly after the event, after you lose the person you love, after you get hit with the devastating news. Mourning is temporary. But when it's something, a real tragedy, a real crisis that, that gets you to the core, grief never, ever goes away. And no matter how long the person has been gone, no matter how well you've healed or readjusted to life, it, you're still, you still have a hole in your heart. Okay, well, one of the things that you did with all this emotion was take to the streets with your shoes. Right? <laughs> Running is a big theme uh, in your book here. And uh, I'd like you to talk just a minute, and then you've got a little section you're going to read about Taylor uh, running. But... Um, Taylor joined Girls on the Run, right? She did. And at what age was she when she joined? So this was in, she was in fifth grade. So she was nine years old, I believe, when she brought that sign-up sheet for home. And while she's in Girls on the Run, she starts to lose her sight. That's right. right. So I think that Taylor was almost totally blind at the time that she was in Girls on the Run, and that was the hallmark symptom at that time. Some of the other issues of Batten disease hadn't really come to the forefront yet. Okay. Well, let's, let's pick it up on page 99. Taylor's Girls on the Run season finished on a frigid morning in early December at Uptown Charlotte's Thunder Road 5K. John and I pulled into Mom and Dad's driveway just as a dull orange glow lit the inky sky. On the floor of her room upstairs, my sister silently tugged on athletic pants and thick socks, her exposed skin dotted with goosebumps. She was wearing her blue team shirt over a hot pink fleece pullover. I helped her pin her race bib onto her t-shirt and tie her running shoes. You're going to do awesome, T, I said to get her talking. She didn't respond, and the look on her face was hard to interpret. Taylor had loved everything about this experience. Yet, here she was, getting ready for her big day, and I couldn't get a peep out of her. I wanted so badly to read her mind right then, to understand what she was going through. But I couldn't, and I I didn't ask. I wasn't sure if we'd shared a private moment or if she drifted into a world I could never fully comprehend. In the kitchen downstairs, she was back to her usual self. When Mary-Kate arrived, Taylor sang her name. She sang between clicks as we took group photos with the huge Fletcher School sign the coaches would carry during the race. We'd painted it with candy canes and Christmas lights the previous night. She sang along to Christmas carols from the third row of my SUV starting the moment we pulled out of the neighborhood until I squeezed into a too-small parking space in the crush of runners uptown. It wasn't until we climbed out of the car that we discovered the jump rope Mary-Kate had used to guide Taylor all season was missing. I felt a weird sensation deep in my gut. There's no way Taylor and Mary-Kate can run a 5K in that crowd without the jump rope, I thought. I should have known not to doubt my sister. The bungee cord stowed in the back of my car for a rainy day was John's idea. Though not perfect, it was about the same length as the jump rope. The girls held it as we headed for the start line. 
I watched as Taylor grew used to the feel of the bungee cord's unfamiliar hook in the palm of her hand, running her fingertips over its curves and lines as we walked and making a fist over the cord when we stopped for traffic. My sister may have been the only blind person running that day, but thousands take part in the annual marathon, half marathon, and 5K. The crowd engulfed us as we approached the start line. When we arrived in the heart of Uptown Charlotte, we ducked inside the warm convention center to join Taylor's teammates and coaches. The moment we found them, my sister's friends surrounded her. A smile spread across her face as their voices reached her ears. When Coach Diane and Coach Kathy took the train of girls back out into the cold for the start of the race minutes later, Taylor led them all in song, their notes lingering as fine white puffs in the December air. And then they were running, the fuzzy white ball of Taylor's Santa hat bouncing in time against the clear blue sky. The throng of mostly taller runners quickly swallowed my sister, but at first I tracked her and Mary Kate by following the Fletcher team sign as it bobbed above the crowd. Soon, even that became impossible, so I I drifted toward the finish area, and I waited. I tugged my toboggan down over my ears, and I tried to stay warm. Fifty-three minutes later, I was still shivering in the cold sunshine when Taylor crossed the finish line with her running buddy, her fingers curled around the bungee cord, her face turned toward heaven. I'd spent so much of the past two-plus years focusing on the ugliness of Batten disease, But when Taylor and Mary Kate crossed the finish line together, there was nothing ugly about that moment. Whereas I'd often felt only anger toward Batten disease, my sister had beaten her demons by ignoring them, by focusing not on what she'd lost, but on what she could still do. She didn't waste her time worrying about what Batten disease had taken from her. She paid it no mind, and she ran a race. Before the trees bloomed in the spring, I'd started running for her. So Laura, that almost gives you chills to listen to, <laughs> to, to that. Uh, it must have been very inspiring to watch her run that race. So there have been a handful of moments in, in my life that were so profound that I feel like I was, it was an out-of-body experience because today I can, it's like I can reach back into my memories and I'm watching a movie reel of my own life. And her crossing that finish line that was one of those moments because here was a girl who was facing every obstacle who could have said, you know, this stinks and I quit or I'm just not going to try. And she just, she just did it. And she wasn't looking for attention. She wasn't looking for acceptance. She did it because she wanted to and she reached out and grabbed it and she achieved. All right. Well, when we come back after the break, uh, we're going to talk about the uh some really positive news in the fight against Batten disease. We're also going to uh, read some more from from this inspiring memoir, um, and uh, we're going to have our writing life segment as well, so stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here at the Robinson Spangler Carolina Room with Tom Hanchett, historian in residence. We're talking about books available at the library, including those available in this wonderful uh, resource. Tom, what's this first book you got? called The Color of Law, and there's been a community-wide read of that in Charlotte because it is so powerful. It's by Richard Rothstein, and it is the story of how the federal government, local governments, other agencies intentionally 
helped segregate our cities, not just at one moment, but throughout the 20th century. Some things are still going on today. Through a concept called redlining. Redlining was just a little piece of it. Urban renewal was another piece. All sorts of stories. And the color of law is really a great place to, to start if you want to understand your city. Now, shifting to books that would be in the Rob Spanger Carolina room, you've got another one here, uh, Sorting Out the New South City. Yeah, this is one of my, my uh, it's actually who, my who, favorite author. Who, who this is, is that by author? Me. Who is that um, Thomas <laughs> This is uh, about 20 years ago, I <laughs> wrote a book about how Charlotte got segregated, how we became a city of separate neighborhoods, black and white, rich and poor. And uh, a, a lot of uh, Charlotte's history uh, laid out in, in detail. Um, I think it's a pretty readable book, but heck, I wrote it, so maybe not. But maybe, uh, maybe, Sorting Out the New South City. Maybe we can talk about that on the podcast sometime. I yeah. sure do that. Okay. Well, thanks, Tom. You can find out more about uh, what's available uh, at, at the library at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. So we're back with Laura King-Edwards, author of Run to the Light. Uh, Laura, throughout this uh, journey that you and your family were on with Taylor, the clock was ticking. Right. Yes, it was. And you met your family. Met you talk about this in the book. Your family um, connected with other parents of Batten's disease. You would go to these conferences, so you would meet other parents, and you you meet their children too, right? That are affected mm-hmm. by the disease. Mm-hmm. And one of the children you met uh, was, was a child named Daniel. And while Taylor was still alive, Daniel passed away. Right. That's correct. And you wrote a letter. Yes. Right? Could you read that? Yep. Dear Daniel, there must be lots of mountains to ski down in heaven. Are they as beautiful as Mammoth Mountain? As you're racing down the slopes, feel the wind in your hair and the sun on your face, but also the presence of your family and friends. They love you so much, and they will always be by your side. You and my little sister Taylor have so much in common. Just like you wouldn't let Batten disease stop you from going to the ocean and skiing, Taylor hasn't let Batten disease stop her from going to school with her friends or singing and dancing. I'm afraid of Batten disease, but Taylor helps me stay strong, just like you help your mommy and daddy stay strong. It's easy to want to fight for fighters like you and Taylor. You are my heroes. I write lots of stories about Taylor, and I even wrote a story about you when you turned 10 years old in January. I am so sorry we weren't able to find a cure for Batten disease in time to save you, Daniel. Everyone already misses you here, but you are with God now, and I know he will keep you safe. Your life inspired so many people, and I know it will help give me the strength I need to keep fighting for Taylor and all of the other children with Batten disease. Your mom told me that after your surgery, she felt like she was seeing the brilliant sunlight of hope for the first time. Even though your body has left us now, Daniel, your spirit still burns brightly. I'm not surprised that someone who loves adventures as much as you do would bring so much hope to so many people. Your life was a miracle, and one day, because of the gifts you gave us, I will find mine. Laura, that's a beautiful letter, but probably very hard to write. was. Um, so Daniel, I actually never met Daniel before he passed away. 
but he and Taylor had a, a special bond and connection that, that no other children could share. They formed the bookends of a historic clinical trial that was actually a stem cell transplant um, that happened in Portland, Oregon, and that um, I go into that in detail in the book. But Daniel's family was the first to have the courage to step forward and, and participate in the safety trial, not only for the hope and the good of, of children facing Batten, but also others who could someday benefit from this kind of treatment. And more than that, even though there were almost 3,000 miles between us, we always looked at things the same way. We had a similar perspective, and it's like we just, we got each other. We we walked this this journey, you know, states apart, a continent apart, but but we did it together. Now, at the time you wrote this letter, uh, there hadn't been any breakthroughs in the research, but uh, you emailed me this morning before you came here today, and we're, we're recording this in May. It won't be out uh, until our season four, but uh, you emailed me this morning with some pretty special news. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so Taylor's Tale has, has done a lot of really great work in different areas from research to advocacy and beyond, but I will always go back to that one singular focus the day we were founded, and that was to spearhead a treatment, a viable treatment that would, if not save, um, extend the lives of, of children like Taylor. And yesterday, we're again, as you mentioned, sitting here in May, um, we got, uh, got word of FDA clearance for a clinical trial to move forward for gene therapy um, that's looking at Taylor's form of Batten disease, which is CLN1 disease. And we have, so we have FDA clearance, which is a huge hurdle to cross. It doesn't always happen. And then also clinical trial sites in the U.S. and Rochester. And this is work that, again, this is a story in the book, but we, um, we spearheaded. We you, believed you, in you it. You funded this research. We did. We funded this research. Um, we met a young investigator named Stephen Gray at a meeting that families had pulled together in Bethesda. Maryland, and we tracked him down. We found out he was in our own backyard at UNC Chapel Hill at the time and raised the money, um, put together the project with him, and really helped see it to fruition where a clinical stage company picked it up and is sponsoring the trial. So when I read your email this morning and you, you talked about how exciting this news was, I had this question in my head, and it was, but I wonder how Laura feels about the timing. Um, it's a it's a good question, Landis. Um, a day not a day goes by that you know. Wish what if Taylor had been born a decade later? Would we have had hope for her? And I realize now that you know one of the many lessons I've learned, I guess, in this fight against Batten disease is there is nothing we can do to change our past, and there is nothing we can do to change the cards we've been dealt. But we have everything to do with how we play those cards and how we shape the future. And I can't change when Taylor was born or the slow rate of progress in research um, you know, in her lifetime. But I learned a long time ago that all of the work that Taylor's Tale has done and will continue to do, it, it won't be her life and hasn't been her life, but it is her legacy. Mm. And that's something worth fighting for because I know as a family member what it feels like to get this diagnosis and to wake up every day and know that we have even a small part in knowing that families like ours won't have to get those same mm -hmm. devastating diagnoses later or at least have answers to turn to. That's, that's really special. 
Well, I'm hoping that that research and that uh, those trials proved to be very successful. <laughs> and, and, and there's some hope that they could be, right? Yeah. I've absolutely. I mean, the, they went through the ringer of the FDA yeah, to get approval. Yeah, yeah the preclinical yeah. data is so promising. Um, you know, this is, this is the first step of many. I don't mm-hmm. like to get ahead of myself, but we had no hope. And now we have incredible hope for these kids. Well, in the last reading, you said uh, that to, when you're writing to Daniel, you talked about how uh, Taylor hasn't let Baton disease stop her from going to school with her friends or singing and dancing, which kind of leads to our next reading. That's right. <laughs> so so uh, I think on page 183, this is a scene where uh, Taylor's at school with her friends and you show up, right? Yep. Okay. When I entered the gym... I walked into a sea of glitter, sparkle, and love. I got a funny catch in my throat as I took it all in. There were so many people, I couldn't see the floor. Teachers were wearing tutus and tie-dye shirts, and the girls were wearing feathery boas and pink tights and strings of beads and dangly earrings that swayed as they danced. Even the boys were covered in pink body paint, as if they were at a powder puff football game. Some of them were wearing tutus, too. A lot of the kids wore homemade t-shirts with phrases like, Tay-Tay, you rock, and we love you, and for Taylor's tale. But it was watching my sister, dressed in a purple boa and purple necklace, and a t-shirt her friends had decorated, that made me blink back tears. Flanked by the other girls, she danced throughout the entire event. Several times, Andre jumped into step with her and chanted her name, and she'd clap and laugh and jump up and down like she was on an invisible pogo stick. Boys I didn't recognize asked her to dance with them. When Andre and the crowd turned to face a different wall, they had a gentle way of making sure Taylor rotated, too. When Andre invited Taylor and her friends on stage toward the end of the program, the other girls helped my sister navigate the stairs so she wouldn't get left behind. The students raised $3,500 that day, support for a future project to save future tailors. I tried not to think about money or time, though. It felt better to focus on the heart those kids put into the event and the kindness they showed toward my sister. Watching Taylor's friends guide her onto the stage, I saw, in a single instant, the depth of my sister's courage and the reality that her path and the paths of her peers had diverged. They'd be learning to drive in a year, Before long, they'd be visiting colleges. Meanwhile, my sister was sliding backward. Batten was gaining speed. Though I didn't know it then, the Cardio Craze fundraiser was the last big event Taylor would attend at the Fletcher School. Laura, you've got some wonderful pictures in the book, and there's one right next to the reading you just did of of the classmates there in the gym, and they're dancing. Um, You keep this book, you talk about this book a lot, and you carry it around. Um, Do you look back at the pictures? often I do um my my fa- I'm actually kind of a, a joke among my family for how much how many pictures I take I mean yeah. now I have a, I have an eight-month-old son and right. take pictures all the time but pictures are really important they're very powerful and and particularly with my sister um they're a record I mean they they help tell her story it's funny actually when I was writing this this book I, I worked with a, a wonderful editor and I sent her the first draft of this chapter, and she had a few questions about the event. Didn't seem as moved as I thought she would be, and she asked for she asked if I had any pictures. And I sent her a picture of the event, and she wrote me back immediately and said, "Oh my God, 
<laughs> you, I need I need to see the sparkly the sparkly jewelry and glitter right. and tutus. You need to plunge me into that moment because, and, and the pictures in the book are in black and white. But um, it, to walk into that scene and see what a, an entire school had done to come together. I mean, this was kids. The, the teachers, mm-hmm. I love the teachers, but they didn't do this. This was the kids who took the initiative for one of their own. Um, it was it was spellbinding. Well, before we go to the final readings of, of this episode, I'd like to do the little writing life segment with you a minute. Uh, so when do you decide you were going to write about this? Um, so in 2013, which is a, a big inspiration for the, one of the events, this big inspiration for the book, I ran a half marathon blindfolded for the first time. And when I crossed that finish line, it was so moving, such an incredible moment. Everybody wanted to know when it was going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I could capture that magic again. So I knew I had to do something else with running, and I started this crazy 50-state journey. I was on the plane to Oregon, which was my first race, um, because Taylor had surgery there in August of 2014. And it just it came to me, and, and it almost in an epiphany, that... I I had been trained as a fiction writer, always thought my first published book would be a novel, but I had to capture my sister's incredible story. And and what better way to do that or what better time than as I embarked on this this cross-country journey for her. I had a lot of time on planes and in hotel bars, and that's where this book actually started. Yeah, and you've got – you read at the top of the show um, about part of that race, and when we finish the show today, you're going to read about – the end of that race i'm looking at the cover here um it looks like it could be any neighborhood here in charlotte lined with trees a little little fuzzy in the distance here but in the middle of the road the paved road is a blindfold that has the number four and then taylor is that what the blindfold looked like that's it yeah and it's purple yeah Why, why purple it's purple blindfold um, and that is the on the cover. It's the actual blindfold that I have worn in, in all of those races um, where I, I run without vision. And the um, kind of the impetus for the four Taylor. I was running a race in Chapel Hill for her in 2010, and I woke up at about four o'clock in the morning. Any runners listening know that that's not weird on race mm-hmm. morning. Um, but I just kind of on a whim pulled out a marker and I, I wrote four Taylor down my left arm because I felt like I was going through a difficult time then and I felt like on that during those 10 miles that that morning's race I needed something visual something to remind me to look down at um if how who I was doing this for mm-hmm. and how difficult her journey is and amazingly some of the hills in that race in Chapel Hill didn't feel quite as hard um I've done it ever since well you said you were trained as a fiction writer now you're writing a memoir did you find difficulty transitioning from one to the other, you're telling a true story here, right? I didn't. So I, I will say that the one maybe difficult piece um, when you're writing a memoir is trying to determine what details to include, what scenes to include, um, largely because a memoir is a, a record of, of somebody's personal story and what's going to be um, what's going to be meaningful to the reader. And it's not just a record of, of what happened. I, I heard Judy Goldman speak recently. Who's a, she, she actually is gives you kudos here in the book. She and, does, yeah. <laughs> but she says it's also about reflection, mm-hmm. you know, looking back and trying to make sense of what actually happened. And, and was that a large part of what you were doing as well? That's absolutely right. I will be quick to tell people, yeah, you may never heard of Batten disease, may never have heard of Batten disease before, but don't let that stop you from reading this book. Um, 
I don't think it's a book about baton disease. I don't think it's a book about running. What I wanted and what I hoped to achieve when I wrote this book was for people to be able to read it, and no matter what walk of life they come from, no matter what issues or struggles they're facing, I want I want them to take inspiration. I want them to take a page out of Taylor's story and find the courage to see the good in the day, to um, to find the opportunity in every tragedy, and and that's that's what I I tried to to paint in writing the story. And. A lot of times people ask the question of memoirist, well, did you share your work with your family before you sent it off? <laughs> what do they think of it? <laughs> um, so my husband probably knows this book better than I do. Um, I read every chapter out loud to him. I did the same thing when I spoke at TEDx Charlotte a few years ago, so he deserves a lot of credit. Um, I offered to share it with my parents and my brother, um, my mom, still to this day, the book has been out for um, about eight months now, and she has not read it. Um, and this goes back to one thing I mentioned earlier on the podcast, Landis, and that's that people deal with tragedy differently. And for me, writing this book, um, we're talking about writing life, and it was cathartic for me. It was um, it was therapeutic because I got to relive all of these experiences with Taylor that are gone now, but it's too painful for my mm-hmm. mom. She was kind of the opposite. She she prefers only to look forward. Mm. Okay, so a couple little uh, things about your writing process. Uh, you can pick one or the other, neither, both. Ink pen or keyboard? Keyboard. Dictionary or spell check? Spell check. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do an outline or are you a free flow? Uh, well, so uh, can I answer in two parts? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I said either or, neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as a as a memoir um, memoirist, you know, it was important for me to really accurately capture what happened. And so, I, I've been keeping a blog since 2007, um, which I feel like was in the Stone Ages of blogging. It's January of 07, and so I had a lot of material to draw from. Um, so part of my, you know, we call it an outline, was just pulling all of that out and starring stories that I wanted mm-hmm. to retell in the book. But then it, when it was time to get down to brass tacks and actually write the book, it was it was free flow. Mm. Yeah, because there's a lot of emotion in this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, yeah. you knew the story, you just had to get it on paper. That's right. right? Uh, in the light of day or the dark of night? Uh, the dark of night, <laughs> except that now I have an infant, and that's probably <laughs> going to have to change with book number two. Okay. Uh, do you write in complete quiet, or do you have some noise, music? What? Uh, I have music. Um, okay. I have uh, noise-canceling headphones, and I always listen to music, but I can't have lyrics. I don't okay. know if other writers like, are the same. I, it's, I, I listen like to movie scores. movie soundtracks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hans, yeah. I have Hans Zimmer chapters. Mm-hmm. I have Thomas Newman chapters, where I remember those were. <laughs> those were the composers that were, were my soundtrack. Now, you don't seem to me to be someone who's shy about getting out and talking about this book, but I ask some authors sometimes, marketing or manual labor? Marketing. <laughs> okay, so you like talking about it, yeah. I'm actually, my day job is marketing, so okay. it, it came, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. cheating a little, but it came naturally. <laughs> uh, one final question. This is a fill-in-the-blank. I write because... Others cannot. Hmm. Okay, we've got a couple of final reads here. Um, we are at a point now where in the book we're at a hospital in Oregon. Taylor's participating in this uh, trial, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a this is a, a scene where you sort of sort of see firsthand the courage. You've seen it before, but you also see it uh, in this scene as well. So you could pick that up on page sixty-seven. 
When we go to the hospital tomorrow, we'll meet more doctors, Dad had said. They'll give you something to help you go to sleep. And when you wake up, your hair will be gone and your head and tummy might hurt. But your hair will grow back before you know it, and you'll feel better soon. The tenderness in my father's voice was a welcome foil for the nervous electricity in our hotel suite. But Taylor didn't respond. Instead, staring blindly at the ceiling in the dim room as she twirled a lock of hair around one slender finger. I knew she understood this was it, that surgery wasn't the same as a simple blood draw or even an MRI. I think my little sister, the bravest person I've ever known, was scared stiff. And there is, uh, I've heard, fear and courage are somehow connected. Yes, they are. Um, You know, I I think that this particular experience... um, the reading that I just that I just shared um, was incredibly scary. We were going into the unknown. Um, we were, for some context for listeners, Taylor was participating in a phase one safety trial to determine whether it was safe to uh, directly transplant um, human uh, stem cells into the brain. And it was just a safety trial. We weren't trying for efficacy. We weren't. They weren't trying to fix the disease. But it was all we had in 2008 um, when she had her surgery um, I think that you know asked you asked about fear and courage being intertwined I think that the very fact that we were there to take part in something so scary had to do a lot with courage because we didn't have to do it Taylor didn't have to do it but we took that leap of faith and the analogy that I'll often use with people is imagine you're in a burning building and you're on the 30th floor do you take your chances and jump out the window and hope that you land softly 30 floors below or do you just stay in that burning building and wait for the inevitable and portland uh oregon where the surgery happened was our burning building at the time and we chose to jump Hmm. jumped and hoped that there would be a safe landing that's right so how, how long was it from the time that taylor was diagnosed until she passed away So Taylor was diagnosed in the summer of 2006, and she passed away in the fall of 18. So it was about 12 years. Okay. So this is something that's on your mind almost every minute of every day. You talk in the book about your husband trying to pull you back, right? Yes. Because of your exhaustion and everything you're putting into it. What about your faith uh, and your doubts during this time? Um, Wavering? They did. Um, So I think that no matter how um, spiritual or religious you are, I I think that all of us likely go through some kind of cycle with our faith, um, depending on where we are in our our life, um, what we see the people we love go through. Um, And I certainly have gone through those those cycles um, in the 12 plus years since Taylor was diagnosed. I've experienced every emotion from anger to sadness to frustration to exhaustion um and there have been days where i was really angry with god um you think about all of the things that have to fall into place for a child to get batten disease and it can make you pretty angry that somebody you love ended up drawing that card and you've got like a little 30 second reading here that speaks to that uh on i think it's on page 201 if you could read that sure Once, several months before, a friend asked me if I believe in God. I believed, I said, but I was angry with him for a long time. I had to search my soul after Taylor's diagnosis. 
I struggled with the concept of a world that includes bat and disease. It didn't happen overnight, but somewhere along the way, I, I don't quite remember when, I had made my peace with God. I came to the realization that God doesn't inflict pain and suffering. Rather, he gives us strength to overcome it. But if we want to survive, we have to believe. So like your mother, there was anger along the way as well. That there's still anger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that ever truly goes away. It just gets um, pushed out a little bit more by, by other emotions. And I will say that anger can be a really healthy emotion. I don't encourage anybody going through something difficult to lose right. that anger. It, it helped us fight It was a motivator harder. too, right? It was. Yeah, it helped yeah. us push. I think a lot of our success with Taylor's Tale has been due to the anger we felt. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to the running for a minute as yeah. we move toward the end of the show here. You've got uh, one final read, and I think it's sort of uh, indicative of what you're going through. You're you're going to run this race no matter what, <laughs> and you're going to do it with a blindfold. Before you read that, so you had a partner, right, who ran with you? I did. Okay, and talk about. I mean, how do you how do you run blindfolded? I mean, you were running, not just walking. Yeah. Right? Well, we were just talking about faith, and yeah. faith takes many forms, and sometimes it's not faith in a higher power, but faith in another human being. And I had to have a lot of faith in my friend Andrew Swistak, who agreed to be my guide for that race. Um, because when I closed my eyes and said, okay, let's go run a nine-minute mile, I was putting putting my, if not my life, then at least my ankle ligaments in, in his hands. Yeah, and, you, and when y'all practiced for this, you did stumble, you got hurt. There were times when it didn't go well, you'd run into something. Um, and all you got between you and him is a cord of some kind, right? We used the same bungee cord that Taylor used. Oh, the same one. Okay, nice. And he's running beside you, right? That's right. But then there's this scene at the end where you move on without him, right? Yes. Can you read that? Yep. Now, the world was dark, and it was just Andrew and Steve and I and an invisible race course stretched out for miles ahead of us. Something strange happened then. After we broke away from the police officer in the truck, we maintained a near-record pace for me despite the blindfold. I could feel my heart beating in my chest and the muscles working in my legs, and running was more effortless than it had ever been. I soared over speed bumps and manhole covers and zigzagged through winding neighborhood roads. Later, I learned from race photos that I'd even split photographers perched on tall stepladders. We'd left the walkers far behind, and we were alone on the course for a long time before the race leaders caught up with us. I couldn't see, but my ears told a story. Each time we approached a cheer station set up at approximately one-mile intervals along the course, people voiced encouragement as they would for any runner. Then they went silent as they realized I was blindfolded. I wish you could see the looks on their faces, Andrew said as we approached one station. But I didn't need to see them. I could hear them clapping and jumping up and down and yelling encouragement long after we'd run past them. It was my race. It was Taylor's race. And nothing had ever felt so wonderful in my life. I'd run 13.1 miles in the dark, but I didn't take a single step alone. As I ran the final stretch of Thunder Road, led by the voice of a friend and the courage of a dying girl, I understood. Batten disease may have cast a dark shadow on our world, but I wasn't running away any longer. I was running to the light. I believed, and I felt free. Laura, when you crossed that finish line... Did it feel more like a beginning? I think that's a a great way to put it. I didn't know 
how the rest of that story would play out. But I, I knew the moment I crossed that finish line that somehow my life had changed and would never be the same. And not just because the awareness we achieved that day would help propel Taylor's tale forward, uh, not just because I had proven to myself that I could do something difficult physically, but I think that the act of training for that race, learning to become blind, if you will, and then doing it on a course in real time in live action gave me the courage I needed to move forward, whether or not that included saving my sister's life, which I was I was under I understood at that point was not going to happen. Who was waiting for you at the finish line? My mom. Yeah, it was always hoping that Taylor would be the first person I hugged. And I've, ironically, she was too sick to come to the race that day. Um, she had taken such a, a dive over the summer while I was training for this race. But my mom was waiting for me at the finish line. And as, again, another one of those moments that you remember, um, like like yesterday, I kind of melted into her arms and took the blindfold off and apparently there were a hundred teenagers around me cheering and screaming they had had chased me down the finish chute um they had been at our cheer station just a little ways back but I didn't see or hear any of that it was just this little insular world with my mom and me well Laura it's hard not to get emotional just sitting here (laughs) hearing you talk about it um but I want to not only thank you for being on the podcast today but thank you for what you're doing for those who can't do for themselves. Thank you. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love. It's, it's never easy. Uh, whether it's, you're talking about the time of day, you know, it takes out of the day or really more so just the emotional component. But I, I believe so strongly in our ability to make a better world for children like my sister, but also anybody facing a rare or devastating illness. And, and I, I think that some things do happen for a reason, and I can't I can't justify Taylor getting sick, but I can justify being her sister mm. and saying, what am I going to do with that? Well, the information about your book is going to be in our show notes, but tell people your website. Uh, well, Taylor's Tale website first. Yeah, yeah. So um, Taylor's Tale is, of course, the, the organization that, that continues to drive me every day, um, and that's at Taylor's Tale. T-A-L-E dot org. We're a, a nonprofit organization based in Charlotte. Okay. And where can they find you online? So you can find me at lauraKingEdwards.com. Great. And you can find out more about Laura uh, in the show notes uh, and links there as well. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Landis, for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Charles Oldham, Charles is the author of The Senator's Son, a turn-of-the-century true crime mystery set on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. In 1905, eight-year-old Kenneth Beasley, the son of a state senator, walked to the back of his school playground near the cold woods and swamplands of Currituck County and never returned. A year later, a political rival of Kenneth's father was arrested and forced to endure a show trial of star lawyers in the state spectators and newspaper reporters after the verdict and the surprising aftermath author charles oldham reopened the case using modern research methods and his legal training to offer his own theory about what really and truly happened in this tragedy that ripped families apart and shocked the state for periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com 
we promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.